Well, excellent. Um, it's wonderful to see uh, so many folks here at the uh, beginning of December, the end of the year, as we're heading into uh, what is for some of us maybe one of the busiest times of the year. So um, thank you all for joining us this evening for our uh, ninth uh, session on these uh, interfaith action principles. Uh, last month we met and uh, Diane uh, Rapoport-Yampolsky gave a reflection on our eighth interfaith action principle on barriers and bridges to the common good. Um, and we thank Diane again for that uh, wonderful uh, reflection last week. Uh, tonight, uh, we are going to be discussing our ninth uh, interfaith action principle. And as we have always done, we're gonna uh, bring that up uh, on, on the screen so you all can see it. I'm a visual person, so I like to, I like to see these things. All right, so this is, uh, this is our principle for this evening. Our common good requires advancing policies of inclusion and equity. We believe that racism and systemic exclusion in multiple forms is an intrinsic evil. As such, capitalism without a foundational commitment to common good is a structural sin. Our faith traditions require us to reject systems that oppress people and create inequities. We are aware that racism and other forms of exclusionary discrimination impact the well-being of both the oppressed and the oppressor. And uh, here this evening uh, to give a reflection on this principle is uh, the Right Reverend uh, Prince Grenville Singh, PhD, who serves as Bishop Provisional of the Episcopal Diocese of Eastern and Western Michigan. Uh, Bishop Singh was born and raised in India, attending seminary and serving several congregations before immigrating to the US in the mid 90s for additional study and service in the Episcopal Church. His church-wide leadership includes Bishops Against Gun Violence, the House of Bishops Theology Committee, the Task Force on the Theology of Social Justice, and as a coach in the College for Bishops and several others. Uh, so uh, Bishop Singh, thank you so much for joining us this evening, uh, especially in the midst of, of your day. And uh, we look forward to your reflection, which will be around 10 to 15 minutes, uh, after which we'll invite uh, the rest of you to uh, uh, maybe have a comment or a question on, on our topic for this evening. So Bishop Singh, turn it over to you. Thank you, Steve, and thank you all for this privilege of gathering together on an uh, evening like this. I appreciate you, you know, tolerating me from a parking lot, uh, but I thought it's better for me to share some reflections, especially because I know some many of you on this call and respect you for the good work that you are doing. So hopefully we will, we will have a, uh, a sort of a deep dive conversation together, and hopefully I can prime the pump in a in a small way uh, to help us move into that. So just to remind us, our common good requires advancing policies of inclusion and equity. We believe that racism and systemic exclusion in multiple forms is an intrinsic evil. I want to say thank you to the interfaith. Um, 
community leadership here with Sid and, and uh, Steve and Vicky. I'm a huge fan of Vicky, uh, especially because I've gotten to know her over the past many months that I've been here. And the, and the deep commitment to not only social justice, but, but to, to right relationships as well. And I, I, I wanna say that uh, you are embodying those values through your leaders and it is uh, it is a pleasure to to behold that. Um, one of my um, informative pieces in coming to this is is the question why why is this important for us and why is it important for me as a person of faith um, to be involved in overcoming racism and systemic exclusion. Uh, and perhaps a simple way for me to capture that um, beyond, beyond my own sort of religious texts is to remind us of what I heard Nikolai Bardev, uh, a Russian theologian philosopher who basically explained it like this. He said, when I am hungry, that is my material problem. But when my neighbor is hungry, that becomes my spiritual problem. I believe that any systemic evil like racism is a spiritual problem for all of us who claim to a spiritual path of any kind. And it, it is going to take in that sense of the word, humble leaders, enlightened leaders, who can see the evil for what it is, but also recognize that, that we are all flawed and that we are all in the process of um, repairing ourselves because we are all part of the system. So with that framework, I want to sort of name three things. One, um, I'd like to speak to the external climate, as I'd like to call it. The external climate is, is what we consider outside of ourselves, within the system, so to speak, of which we are, we are a part. And how is this system of racism and all the other isms that go with it impacting the way we live our lives? How are our worldviews feeding into this external climate so that it is being sustained over many centuries. I think it's important for us to get a grasp of some of that in order for us to actually figure out meaningful ways to move beyond um, the racist and exclusive systems that, that we have created and sustained. Um, so. I believe it's important for us to be critical of the system and and look at the larger system and not just at individual atrocities that happen um, and just look at it or address it as something that needs humanitarian intervention uh, or you know a compassionate service, et cetera, but that we are constantly also looking at 
the advocacy level in that sense of the word. They're all on the same path. I do believe that whether it is social work in terms of feeding the hungry or getting engaged in um, policy changes so that the systems may change, all of them are, in my opinion, uh, on equal footing. Uh, so there's not really a hierarchy of uh, compassion, but they are different expressions. So when we look at the external climate, so to speak, and analyze um, to see how we can become increasingly uh, a beloved community that is moving beyond racism and exclusive practices, uh, we, we do need to keep in mind that our engagement is, is going to have to be constantly evaluated and, and changed, if you will, so that we are, we are not sort of on a rote kind of a project um, because things are changing. Racism's manifestation are constantly changing. And you know, for us to be really plugged into some of the ways systemic racism is being uh, lived out or manifested in our various contexts, we're going to need each other in that sense of the word. And because we are all part of the system, uh, while I can call it external climate, my participation is, is also important for me to consider. So I would say that you know, being attentive to the system um, is important and that calls for some degree of uh, self-differentiation so that we are not constantly being sucked into it by, by the emotional aspects are, that are a part of any systemic issue that we involve ourselves. Um, and I want to say that one of the ways to be mindful of that is to also pay attention to our internal climate. And by internal climate, I mean, we have to be mindful that while we have tools, for instance, and I'm, I'm like many of you uh, in that sense of the word, trained to be suspicious. I went to seminary, I went to do a, uh, some doctor work, and most of it was about uh, what we affectionately in the theological world especially call a hermeneutic of suspicion. I'm sure you are familiar with it. And, and you know, one of the things with the hermeneutic of suspicion is that um, we are, in that sense of the word, trained. I am trained to be suspicious, which is an important part of paying attention to the, to the system. Right? So in the process though, what I'm discovering increasingly is this notion that a hermeneutic of suspicion is like a tool. And a tool is only as useful as the problem it is expected to um, correct or repair. If the tool is not being used appropriately, then it becomes um, in many ways destructive. So one of the things I would say to you, as I say to myself almost every day, is, is to be mindful. 
And that's why I'm calling it internal climate. I need to maintain my internal climate so that I'm not contributing to furthering the discriminations that exist within the system called racism or other aspects of exclusion or other manifestations of exclusion. So to be mindful of my internal climate is something that I need to steward. I need my own disciplines and my, I, my own sense of community to help me guard against becoming suspicious of everything. Am I making any sense? So, you know, so I would say, you know, for instance, I'll just use this as an example. My suspicion of things in the system, when it, when it overflows into my common life and I become suspicious of everybody and everything, there's no peace anymore. There is no room for beloved community anymore because I'm constantly expecting the worst. And I think as people of faith, we do need to embody hope and we do need to embody trust. We do need to embody beloved community. To me, beloved community is the exit strategy for racism. And when it is practiced, and I love the fact that you've got these 10 principles, which are also practices, right? And I love the, the second principle that you have, which is called tenderness. I just commend you for that. Because while it is important for us to be mindful of the systemic uh, realities of racism and practices of exclusion, it is also important for us to recognize that practices of tenderness are as equally important. Do you see what I'm saying? I think at the end of the day, as, as learners, I think all of us are learners, um, we are constantly being invited to keep some me meaningful balance so that our internal climate and the external climate, while related, are engaged appropriately. And so to go back to the hermeneutic of suspicion as a tool, you know, you've heard this many times, you know, we cannot be like the guy with a hammer for whom everything is a nail. We just have to be careful. We have to be mindful that appropriate tools at appropriate times are are helpful, but they are not the tools for everything. And while racism is prevalent, it is not everywhere. It is also important for us to recognize that the beloved community will only happen when there is a willingness to trust and perhaps to trust again and again and again. That's the only way we are going to get out of this whirlpool in my opinion because otherwise for generations we'll be doing the same diagnosis and coming to similar conclusions 
but when we when we don't have a way to move out of it and that's why i think the value of um howard thurman and uh, king uh, and josiah josiah rollins are all so significant because they were able to identify beloved community as a significant aspect of movement beyond systemic racism the final thing i will say as a way to invite some reflection is the interconnectedness of all things there is no hierarchy of pain there's no one oppression that is more significant than others it may be important for us to focus on one because of the priority that it has lacked in a system but all of them are connected so we don't need to put or pit one oppression against the other or see if you know one of them is in that sense of the word more significant than the other and it takes i think leaders who are willing to say that you know there are many ways in which we can address some of these things and perhaps to to strategically address them you know like these 10 principles perhaps to have a a meaningful way to address some of them because they are all there and none of them is uh, superior to the other and so on so i think just being aware that these are interconnected and that studying one and engaging in deep dives in one system is going to have um a lot of information and wisdom to help us tackle some of the others so to sum up i want to say yes the external climate and the diagnosis of racism as a systemic evil is truly important from my faith vantage point we have um very sort of clear ways in which to understand this one way to understand it from my faith tradition is to look at what we call the baptismal covenant and the baptismal covenant is basically split into two parts the first of which is about the essence essence of god uh, or the holy and the second part of it is the so what how does that impact us in our living the first part of it is what i would like to call providence and the second part of it is what i do with that providence which is agency and that's where you know it's it's not a passive response to faith that we are called to but really an active and engaged and curious response to whatever faith tradition that we have to making sure that the holy is impacted because we respond as agents who pursue that that sense of beloved community that we are all called to build i will stop there thank you bishop for that uh reflection on uh, the external climate the internal climate and uh, the interconnectedness of of all of us uh, a lot to chew on there so um thank you for getting us started um and at this time like i said we'll turn it over to to the group uh any uh comments you might have or or questions for bishop singh in this reflection on uh resisting racism and uh systemic exclusion yeah bill 
Thank you, Bishop, for being here tonight. You mentioned uh, racism manifestation changing, constantly changing. Can you give us maybe a short uh, discussion of the long view of how you've seen that manifestation change over time, particularly as it relates to the church? Hmm. So I just got back. Uh, thank you, Bill. That's a great question. I just got back from uh, visiting Virginia. Uh, I was in Richmond for uh, the consecration of the Bishop of Virginia, who uh, is a friend of mine. And you know, going to Richmond, and I don't have a lot of history with Richmond, but I was there for for a year early on. Uh, in fact, that's the place I started some of my education in my uh, master postmasters study. Um, Racism in the South is different from racism in Rochester, for instance. Um, so I, this is the, this is how I would explain it, and it, it's not it's not uh, uh, academic, but I think it's anecdotal. Um, it's pretty stark. Everybody kind of knows the kind of Southern racism, if you will. It's pretty black and white, and and uh, um, writ large in that sense of the word. It's hard to miss it. In the North, I found that it's a lot more subtle. And um, I would also almost go to the place of saying it's Kipling-esque. Uh, it's kind of like the white man's burden version of racism. That there is almost like an obligation that is felt um, within the system to care for people of color, but also keep them under control. And sort of, uh, so it's lived out with some sophistication, if I can put it that way. So it is constantly changing in that sense, but it may not be as, um, as clear and as, um, recognizable right away. The, the social mores may be um, more nuanced. And that's what I mean by the changing um, morphing, or it's more the morphing of, of racism, right? So um, in, its, in its manifestation, I believe that there, there is a constant shifting that is taking place and a sort of a negotiation with which people respond um, to the reality of racism. And so to be mindful of all of that um, and, and recognize it for what it is would be wise, is, is, is what I would say. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Clark and then uh, Jane. Uh, thank you, Bishop uh, Singh. I had a, a different kind of question. I wondered, just based on your own experience, if you were to think about the arenas of, um, of advancing policies of inclusion and equity, uh, where the churches, uh, religious communities of all sorts currently uh, could exercise the most leverage to bring about 
changes for inclusion and equity. Uh, education, uh, more specific projects like reparations, highly complex, com complex issues of migration. I mean, where, where uh, would a group like this representing several different uh, denominational backgrounds be able to, to exert leverage that would be heard, that would uh, maybe raise questions that are not currently being posed uh, in order to bring about change. Thank you, Clark. Uh, I, I think my, in my observation, one of the most significant places we can make a big difference is in making sure that our leadership bodies, as well as leaders, i.e. staff, are expressing or living into um, this understanding of moving beyond racism. So it's, it's important for us to make sure that the leadership, not just people who are, you know, members, but, but leaders um, are people of color, women of color, um, LGBTQ plus, if we are going to be in, you know, um, impacting policies, it's important for us to have people who can actually help us do more than symbolic changes in policies. Mm -hmm. And so to have embodied leadership, um, I'll say this as, as a person of color, um, being at the table as a person of color is not easy because sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll give you a caricature. I've had white friends of mine say, uh, Prince, could you tell me when I'm being racist? And I'm like, I, I can't do that for you. You got to do that work, right? But I can help make some policy changes, right? So I would say, Clark, that if there is one major significant change that can be made in any system, and every system can deal with this, it is to make sure that the inclusion is at the leadership level. Mm -hmm. Everything else, in my opinion, will change, not only policy-wise, but actually in, this, in the sense of integrity of those policies, and not just the symbology behind the policies. Once you have more and more leaders who are being invited to serve uh, in whatever body. Yeah. I, uh, I think that's a, that's a, a really striking point, uh, especially given uh, the media uh, sensibility today that when they say Christianity, uh, they almost immediately leap to the conclusion that they're talking about white Christian nationalism. So uh, we not only have uh, changes to make, or I, let me put it another way, the changes you're proposing 
are changes that uh, are crucial, not only to uh, what we do as religious communities, but to the perception, the public perception of what religion is in the wider mm -hmm. society, what it represents, what its possibilities are, its uh, capacity for initiating change rather than reinforcing some false nostalgia of the past. Right, right, well said. Yes, I agree, I agree. Is Jay going to Hi, say something? Hey, Jay. Hi, Bishop, good to see you. Thank you so much you, for um, being here and, and offering these reflections. I'm really grateful. And one of the several things that caught my attention is in your description of the importance to be mindful of our, our internal climate, you said something like, this requires a set of disciplines and a community um, to help us be mindful. And what that brought to mind for me is what um, I continue to strive to do here as a, a parish priest, which is to make a connection between the formative aspects of worship and our life in the world. And I wonder if you could say some more about, and the reason this is so uh, striking to me is because I think a lot of progressive communities think of worship and prayer as kind of ancillary or icing on the cake somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of worshiping communities don't see why their worship matters for social change. So I'm trying to see if you might be able to <laughs> say a little bit more about why and even from an interfaith perspective, our spiritual mm -hmm. practice and our worship actually mm -hmm. makes a distinctive contribution to this work, if that makes sense. Absolutely, absolutely does. Thank you, Jay. Yeah, you know, I mean, when I, I was recently reflecting on some of the teachings of um, Martin Luther King Jr. And, and especially before they started a march, they would pause and, and he would remind people and not just him, but many of the leaders would remind folks that the purpose of the march and the protests was not to defeat somebody. That it was really about not scoring a victory march on somebody or, but it was about reconciliation to make things right with one another, which is also uh, the other side of justice, right? I mean, to, to set things right relationship-wise um, in the flip would be reconciliation as well. So justice without reconciliation um, is really um, not sustainable, right? So I, I think you're right in saying that that's where it becomes um, a part of our spiritual well-being where we are able to nurture a spirit of, for instance, forgiveness. Because without that, you couldn't begin to move in the direction of reconciliation. And so when the, the temptation is to be vengeful, I believe our spiritual disciplines 
are able to help us move to places where forgiveness can give us a reasonable and substantial place from which to then heal ourselves and help restore relationships. So that we are not constantly trying to defeat somebody, you know? I think that's, that's, a, that's a part of our spiritual opportunity. And, you know, of course, there are all kinds of uh, ways in which spiritual um, disciplines have been abused. And we know several ways in which the church, for instance, has, you know, taken on um, some really questionable ways in which we've mixed up ideology and theology and done harm. The good news, I think, is that the opposite is also true. That there are disciplines like deep prayer uh, and meditation by which we are able to do some work internally, but also to bring substantial systemic change that would be about building beloved community and moving in the direction that is not just about addressing over and over again uh, the maladies of our world, but to see where joy is and help people live more into it. And I think as communities, when there is a, an opportunity to move beyond uh, our brokenness and when joy becomes real and shared in community, then I think we actually let our better angels come out and dance mm -hmm. and sing. So uh, you're absolutely right. The connections between how we worship and, and how we pray, et cetera, um, they become key in our movement forward. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jay. Sid. Uh, Bishop, uh, over the past couple of years, there have been uh, two areas of work here at Interfaith Action have, that have influenced our perspectives around anti-racism commitments. One was uh, Interfaith Action facilitated a book discussion of Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be Anti-Racist. And Kendi makes a strong point that uh, He's somewhat skeptical about uh, anti-racism educational programs because many times those that participate in those uh, educational programs uh, conclude with, I've done my anti-racism work. And to use your words, it never moves on to practice or to systemic change. Uh, Public uh, Religion Research Institute uh, about a year ago uh, in its surveying found that white Christians who attend worship on a weekly basis are 30% more likely to hold racist views than whites who don't attend church at all. So both of those inputs uh, caused us to look at how we might facilitate systemic change within the faith communities that are a part of interfaith action. And we developed a checklist of actions or behaviors 
that a congregation uh, could take in order to be designated as an anti-racist congregation. Um, an effort to move beyond very robust denominational uh, anti-racism educational curricula and apply that in actions within uh, the faith community as well as uh, outside in the community at large. Uh, to get the ball rolling, I approached one congregation uh, to encourage them to consider being an anti-racism congregation. And they stepped up to the plate. And then I sat back and waited. And after six months, uh, there has been no additional congregation who has indicated that they are ready to be an anti-racism congregation. Uh, what guidance do you have from your experiences, your expertise in building beloved communities, communities that are a light in the world that model how society should be transformed through their own systemic transformation. Well, uh, Sid, you are naming something that is uh, uh, pretty significant, uh, at, at least from, from where I sit in the Episcopal Church. You know, we, we too have been through a whole season of anti-racism training, for instance. Um, I, when I was in Rochester, I found that uh, for the most part, many folks who went through the training did it grudgingly um, because it was mandated and, and so on. So towards the end of my episcopate in, in Rochester, I actually started to change some of the expectation we stopped calling it anti-racism because, you know, when you're against something that has its own limitations, because that's, you know, not a sustainable way to, to go. Um, so we started to speak about it more in terms of racial reconciliation, healing and justice. But beyond the title change, I think the invitation to any human being for a spiritual path that involves building beloved community would be, in my opinion, a lot more uh, welcoming and perhaps will take um, some rootedness. Because at the end of the day, Sid, you, you know, you, you, you may agree with me on this. I learn best, and I say this rhetorically and personally, I learn best when I'm not defensive. So as a pedagogical approach, um, as soon as you say anti-racism, you've lost all the white people, mostly, in terms of pedagogical um, ferment. And once people become defensive, 
it just takes it to a very shallow place of learning. Um, and those of you who are educators may, may agree with me or, or not, but that's my sense of it. I find that when we are able to open it up to a larger um, agenda, if you will, and that's why Beloved Community is such a big project for us. It's, a, it's such a big vision for the future. And it has within it elements for all of us, you know, regardless of color, to learn from and participate and build some ownership. So I, I would say that perhaps, perhaps the direction that may be more sustainable would be to invite um, learning and practice around building beloved community. And the more we are able to do it in an interfaith context, the more we can actually learn with each other and from one another and together make a better sense of what religion means in that sense of the word. Because, you know, at the end of the day, religion is in, in, in several ways hijacked today, as, as many of you mentioned already. Um, Christian being one, but every religion, in my, in my opinion, is being hijacked by some extreme version mm -hmm. of nationalism, for instance. Um, with all my respects for white, uh, white Christian nationalism, you know, it's been done in other places too. <laughs> there are really sophisticated ways in which religious nationalism is being engaged and practiced around the world. So sorry, white people, you don't have a monopoly on this, right? Well, what I'm saying is if this is a human problem that impacts anybody, then I think a larger, a wider, a more generous invitation would be to see if we can help participate in building and sustaining beloved community. And the good news is we have many models already in place. Any, many places that it's working. There are, there are so many ways in which um, hope is being generated because you know barriers are breaking down and I think people are coming to greater um, participation and and there is a sense of beloved community that's building up and you know certainly uh, the crises of our world are driving us in that sense of the word to to do a little more of that and thankfully there is still some hope in that we can come together and and uh, and do some good work and in the process um, let go of some of these uh, worldviews that sustain racism. I don't know if that's helpful, Sid. Uh, 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 yes, uh, I, I think uh, Kendi would say we shouldn't forget to name the evil or the un injustice that is racism. So that right. uh, I, I certainly resonate with, you know, kind of the, the positive slant, uh, what we are for as opposed to uh, what we are against. Uh, that resonates with me. 
but uh, Kendi and other black theologians keep emphasizing to stare the evil <laughs> in the face uh, uh, so that we can begin to move to places of, of, of healing and inclusion and beloved community. Uh, mm -hmm. But thank you very much for that. Thanks, Sid. All right, and on that note, uh, we are uh, just past 645, and I want to thank uh, you, Bishop Singh, once again for your reflection, and thank you all for uh, for your engagement with this topic, uh, and we hope that it will be a continuing conversation. I would invite you to take a look at the anti-racism uh, checklist, uh, the criteria, uh, if you haven't already, having conversations with your faith communities about those principles or feel free to reach out to me or uh, Vicky or Sid uh, if, if, if what you're seeing is is challenging or is something that you want to move forward with but um, in the meantime we're grateful for these discussions thank you to you Bishop uh, for for your reflection and leading us and uh, wishing you all a happy end of the year thank you blessings on you take good care